1: I am thrilled to welcome Ambassador Michael Frohman to the show. He is a distinguished fellow at the Council of Foreign Relations, and uh, he was President Obama's principal advisor, negotiator, and spokesperson on international trade investment issues. He led the negotiations of the Trans-Pacific Partnership and the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership. Uh, Ambassador Frohman, thrilled to have you! Right Thank now, you we're here. hearing a lot about how broken a lot of these trade agreements are. Is there one aspect of NAFTA and some of the other trade agreements that could be tweaked to sort of ameliorate some of the anger? And where do you think the anger is really coming from?
2: Well, absolutely. I think NAFTA is now 23 years old. And under President Obama, we sought to renegotiate NAFTA through the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Canada and Mexico were members of TPP. Mexico agreed in the context of TPP to have binding and enforceable labor and environmental provisions, which they did not have in in NAFTA. Uh, They agreed to uh, open up their energy sector to U.S. participation. They agreed to put disciplines on their state-owned companies. Uh, They agreed to a whole series of obligations around the digital economy. And similarly, Canada. Canada had refused to open up its dairy and poultry markets to U.S. exports in nafta and through tpp we were able to open up those markets so there certainly is improvement to be to be had in 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 nafta we did that in tpp and i think the question now is what does the trump administration seek to do beyond what we did in tpp uh, to to address this i've heard uh, secretary ross has mentioned uh, he wants to talk about uh, the digital economy about raising la- uh, uh, living standards in Mexico, that's exactly what our labor chapter and our digital economy chapter did in TPP. And I think we're all waiting to see what else he wants to do and the administration wants to do that goes beyond that.
0: Ambassador Froman, can you give us some details of the nitty gritty of where, when and how these negotiations take place and how are they prepared for some of the technical background information that would come with the bureaucracy and and the new administration?
2: So Congress passed a law in June of 2015 called Trade Promotion Authority, which lays out a whole series of processes that the administration has to go through before negotiating any trade agreement. And that involves deep consultations with Congress, I think, for at least 90 days. It involves reaching out to stakeholders and having public hearings and getting input. And this is the normal process you go through when you negotiate in a, a trade agreement. So the, the Trump administration uh, seems to be beginning that process now. And I think uh, uh, Secretary Ross uh, indicated on, uh, earlier this week on an interview here on Bloomberg that it was going to take some number of months before they would get started actually in renegotiating uh, NAFTA primarily for that reason. And and that's uh, that's the the first step that needs to be done. I think once you get beyond that and you have a clear sense of what it is you want to put on the table, what the parameters of the negotiation will be, it then involves consultations with uh, with our partners, Canada and Mexico, uh, to determine uh, whether they are willing to engage on that basis. And of course, <clears throat> as we reopen NAFTA, they may well have their own issues that they want to put on the table.
1: Well, I want to pick up on that point in particular. Uh, There was a story today about how Mexico's sugar industry, uh, which is upset about the idea of possibly being blocked or tariffed, uh, taxed by importing uh, sugar into the U.S., might block imports of American high fructose corn syrup in retaliation. How concerned are you that relations between Mexico and the U.S. will deteriorate before negotiations even begin and derail any potential to really come up with a beneficial plan?
2: Well, these are, there are some longstanding, outstanding issues. Sugar with, uh, with Mexico is uh, one of them. Uh, the U.S. sugar industry brought some actions under our trade remedy laws uh, that, uh, that kept Mexican sugar out of our market. We negotiated an agreement to settle that. That agreement has been uh, uh, fraying at the edges, or there's been a lot of pressure on that agreement. And uh, the the comments you mentioned reflect the concerns that Mexican sugar producers have, and they've always threatened that if we keep sugar out of our mar- their sugar out of our market, they'll keep our fructose out of out of their market since uh, they they are a substitute for each other to a certain degree. All that puts a premium on making sure that you're using all the goodwill that you have with your neighbors, that you're uh, making sure that you're addressing their concerns, and it, it doesn't deteriorate into a trade war. Because any of these issues can lead to sanctions and counter sanctions, and that's not good for 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 any of us. And so, whether it's sugar with Mexico or dairy issues with uh, with Canada, we have outstanding trade issues that need to get addressed. Many of them were addressed in the context of of, of TPP. And going forward, since the administration has determined that it doesn't want to move forward uh, in it with its own participation in TPP, it's going to find it's going to need to find other ways of addressing these outstanding issues. Do you
0: believe that there is any political connection between TPP trade and uh, the rhetoric on trade and the desire for, uh, as uh, Commerce Secretary Ross talked about in those negotiations, is there any connection between that and the
2: border wall proposal? Well, look, I, I think there will be lots of uh, uh, PhD dissertations written on this last election and and what was what went into the the. Well, just give them your headline, give you about uh, 15 seconds. <laughs> so, like, I, I think that uh, notwithstanding the rather remarkable economic recovery of the last seven years, there are a lot of people who are angry and resentful and uh, they're seeing the impact on wages and jobs, Much now, economists will tell us, much of that impact, the vast majority of the impact comes from technology, some of it comes from globalization. Uh, But you don't get to vote on technology, you don't get to vote on globalization, you get to vote on trade agreements, and you get to vote on immigration. And so uh, uh, taking action against, whether it's foreign governments or foreign immigrants, is a bit of a scapegoat for people's understandable economic insecurities. They may be the wrong target, they may not be the cause of the problems, but they are a reflection of how angry and, and anxious people are about their economic well-being in the country.
0: Well, I got to say that is a very diplomatic answer and I want to, you're a diplomat ambassador Michael Froman thank you very much a former US trade representative currently a distinguished fellow uh, at the Council on Foreign Relations We've got Oxel Merck. He is the president and chief investment officer of Merck Investments. And uh, Oxel, maybe you could respond uh, to this information and maybe explain how this fits into the context of what the ECB is attempting to do.
3: Yes. Hi, hi Pen, Hi, Lisa. Well, I think... Mr. Draghi is known to pivot. Um, Every six months, he comes up with a completely new story. And and every time he holds a meeting, he gives some positives of negatives. And then half a year later, he says, see, I told you I was right. I mentioned all the positives. So I mentioned all the negatives. And so this time around, the glass was half full. He said, everything is working. Our policies are fantastic. And by the way, yep, we are attentive but not anxious about anything that's coming up. Meaning, If if things do go bad with the upcoming election, I'll bail you guys out. And so, what I have been arguing, including on your program, is that we've reached the bottom of the interest rate cycle in Europe, and that is not priced in. And we've seen that in the euro, especially the last two days, how it's been moving higher. And that's exactly that, that they are looking at ways how they can get out of this, this massive QE they're doing. And uh, and sure enough, everything is relative to what's being priced in, and the euro has been moving higher. And even on the backdrop of a good job report, the dollar has been weakening today.
1: Axel, uh, to that point, what would the market effect be should the ECB start raising rates sooner than uh, is currently being priced in?
3: Well, that that's bound to happen because everything is, Pricing in that, um, that Le Pen is going to win, that the Dutch um, is, is going to be uh, pulling, uh, they're going to be out of the EU or whatever it might be. Uh, there's so much negative news priced in. There is a price in that, that the rates are going to go forever right. lower and, and there's that uh, they have been ineffective, not going to go lower. And so what's going to happen, in my view, is that, that the euro is going to strengthen over time. Um, and and uh, because we, we've priced in all these wonderful rate hikes in the U.S., but I think in the U.S. we are far more behind the curve than in Europe.
1: So, but, but hold on a second, because which assets specifically will uh, sell off the most should the ECB say raise uh, benchmark rates? I don't know, before the end of this year? Which assets will sell? That's a good
3: most. question. I mean, in, in the last two days, the German bonds have been significantly underperforming. If you're kind of on the micro level, the yield spreads have been narrowing, partially on the back of Draghi saying everything is fine. But in the, in the medium term, of course, the problem is that over years, the, all, all all central banks have been doing if they've compressed risk premium. That means all risk assets are expensive, and that means all risk assets may come down. And that is everything from from stocks to to junk bonds. And then yes, even on the on the safer bond side. So I, um, I being quoted by you guys as saying that I'm, I'm negative on both bonds and equities and that's absolutely right i i just don't see unless we have this gigantic economic growth that we're going to get and get to a normalization without a very serious correction in the asset crisis and and stocks might be more vulnerable um than uh, than than some other securities are but but i do think yes that both stocks and bonds are vulnerable
0: Axel, do you think we're in a credit bubble
3: um, well, bubble is a loaded term, but, but by all means, we have, we have been. What, what's different from the credit bubble in 2007 is that if it, if it were to burst, I don't see necessarily a disorderly collapse as there was a risk in 2007. But that doesn't mean we're not in a bubble. It doesn't mean we cannot have a severe correction. And so basically, we cannot afford to have high rates. I once talked to a, a Fed official. He had just retired from a regional uh, Fed, and I, I asked him kind of uh, why why is the Fed so scared of hiking rates, um, of, of of kind of pushing asset prices down or, or stock market down. And he so, said, well, they, the Fed is never concerned about it unless they cause the bubble. And then, then he paused, uh, meaning that uh, one of the reasons we can't hike rates is because we've built this recovery on asset price inflation. And so if we were to try to get ahead of the curve, we would not just tumble the stock market, but we could cause years of economic harm. And that's really the problem we have. We, 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 The Fed has become a slave of the market, and it's showing. The market knows it, and this is taking the Fed for a ride, right, so to speak.
1: So, uh, Axel, let's move from Europe and move to the U.S., where we just got this jobs report uh, that gave the market exactly what it, what it wanted, and you're seeing traders pile back into riskier assets from stocks to high-yield bonds. Uh, some of the assets that you were saying in Europe are uh, in Inflated by low rate policies. Do you think that this sort of knee jerk Pavlovian response to this Goldilocks environment is just simply setting up the market for a bigger fall when the Fed eventually does start uh, hiking rates faster?
3: Well, it it does every time, right? I mean, the the last time we held the Goldilocks economy was uh, in, in the mid 2000s, right? That didn't end too well. Now again, I'm not suggesting we're going to have a 2008 sort of collapse again, but um, but yes, when everything's look great, you should start planning for for the period thereafter. Wait, but- and, and 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 so that means you take chips off the table, you rebalance the portfolio, and then try to take prudent steps.
1: But Alex, uh, uh, just to Axel, uh, just to sort of take the the other side of that. I mean, everyone who's tried to take chips off the table has suffered right i mean it's been absolutely absolutely, so, so, absolutely. I mean, and what...
3: that's why and that's all the more reasons to do it right i mean when the uh, i'm one of the few folks who's who's cautioning and and when when i shut up and stop co- being cautious about the markets, yes then definitely sell your portfolio right i mean it's the uh, anybody who has been cautious has underperformed No, no, you're the as they and, say
0: you're the last man in when you exactly. go in, so you that's stop, that. That's you when, th- then, then we're done for. Here, I just want to.
3: When you stop calling me, sell your stock. Exactly.
0: There you go. Yeah, but no. Here, I want. I want to. Before you go, I want you to tell us what do you think about the uh, forget what you want, what we want, anybody wants. Tell me what you believe interest rates will be uh, at the end of twenty seventeen, and go ahead. I'll give you a wild guess for the uh, for any point in two thousand eighteen.
3: Yeah, well, I'll give you the same answer I've given you before when you have asked me this question. Wherever we'll be, will be behind the curve. It doesn't matter where normal rates are. It matters where they are relative to inflation. Right. And the Fed is... Should be 2.1%, ...behind right? the curve. Should be around um, it, 2.1% right <laughs> now. Possibly. 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 That's what's priced in. But it, it, it is depending on the market. If the market is doing great, we'll get higher rates. If the market falls a fit, we're not going to get it. So the market is in charge yet. If we're going to have continued rallies... In the stock market, if bonds are going to behave, we'll continue hiking rates. But if we see trouble because of anything, um, then you can blame the Chinese, you can blame the the French, or who, or, or, or Trump, or whoever it might be. Um, then, um, then yes, these expectations will come down. And so, I know the next recession is going to come. I know the next bear market is going to come. The price, the timing is of course not known. But what we do know is that the Fed, the reason they are there so 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 extremely. Um, slow in raising rates is because they just don't want to unravel anything. And the problem is, of course, in doing so, they're creating more bubbles. And at some point, it's going to unravel. And with hindsight, I tell you exactly when that will have happened.
0: Well, we're going to call you when it happens. Axel Merck, President, Chief Investment Officer, Merck Investments, based in San Francisco. Muni's in focus with Joe Mysack, editor, Bloomberg Brief Markets. You know, I got to ask you, Joe, one of the things that we're always talking about is Puerto Rico. But I was noticing that there are a lot more problems in the muni market than just Puerto Rico. Can you give us sort of the the bird's eye view of what's going on in Illinois and whether this demonstrates something larger than just finance?
1: Is Illinois absolutely like not ever going to recover from this.
4: No, Illinois could solve all its problems tomorrow uh, if they had the political will to do it, which is exactly what one of the rating agencies brought up last week. They say, wow, a a state that goes three years without a budget, which is what we're heading into, uh, is demonstrating lack of political will. But they could do it tomorrow. They're a very wealthy state. They're, uh, you know, the capital of the Midwest, right? Everyone well, goes to Illinois. Everyone just, goes to Chicago.
1: Just to put this into perspective, uh, Joe Mysick, uh Illinois revenue saw a steep year-over-year drop last month, the commission said. Uh, this is, I mean, according to a monthly report issued Tuesday by the Partisan Commission on Government Forecasting and Accountability, uh, significant downward adjustment to its estimates coming in March. Uh, it had... Overall base revenues, that had a, fall, uh, a shortfall. Gross personal income tax, everything is down, 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 down. So this is more than just simply coming up with a budget. I mean, they face pension issues. They pay. They, they face, uh, you know, revenue tax revenue issues. Is well, it really that easy?
4: A lot of the, uh, a lot of that fall in revenue was because uh, an income tax increase uh, lapsed. And, uh, you know, the, so so there's that. Um, but of course, there's also some people moving out of state. Yes, you're right there. Uh, you know, Illinois is is a, a pim you brought up before the uh, the sort of big picture. Illinois is sort of a, an outlier. It's the exception that proves the rule. Uh, the rule being you know, municipalities take care of themselves. They're well run. They don't default on their debt. In Illinois, what you have is the uh, lawmakers sort of driving the bus off the cliff. Remember the old headlines in the New York Times? Bus plunge kills 25. This is what it's like. Bus plunge in Illinois.
1: Happy Friday. Uh, You know, (laughs) I want to I want to ask, though, about the bonds of Illinois. Uh, There was a great chart on the terminal uh, this week by Martin Braun looking at how Foreign money is flooding into municipal bonds in the United States. And I found this fascinating. I'm wondering, are they going to places like Illinois?
4: Oh, of course they are, especially uh, because, uh, you know, by driving the bus off the cliff for the last, you know, two and a half, three years, we've seen spreads over the benchmark uh, municipal. Uh, it's almost 250, sometimes over 300 basis points over what. Triple A municipalities borrow for, so you're getting a big yield premium. But of course, for foreign investors who are getting sometimes zero percent, uh, U.S. muni's look terrific. They just have to kind of. There is a learning curve to them.
0: Just to put this into more into sharper focus, uh, this was in January, right? The Attorney General of Illinois asked a judge to lift an order that required state workers to be paid during the state's record 19 month as you said, the budget impasse in hopes, and so on. And uh, they filed a motion in the St. Clair County to dissolve the order that would have authorized the state comptroller to actually pay out the wages so they don't have to pay out the wages. At what point does this just not become workable? Uh,
4: Probably June 1. Okay. Okay. That's when they really should have their next budget all set and uh, ready to go. And you know what? Chances are they will because I really don't know municipalities except the ones that are in extremis that drive the. Bus off the
1: cliff. So you think that somebody who goes into uh, into Illinois bonds that are yielding three or four percentage points above where other tri- where AAA uh, muni's are yielding that they're going to get their money back?
4: That's money good, sure. Yeah, the, you know, Illinois right. can't afford not to pay its debts. So they're not going. They're not going. Uh, you know, first of all, bankruptcy isn't an option for states. Right. But um, yeah, they're. You know. Illinois is going to be okay.
1: Well, one area that might not be okay. we need to talk about Puerto Rico, because uh, this week there were some developments. The Fiscal Control Board rejected uh, the governor's plan for uh, financial plan going forward. Can you give us some color around this, what this means for bondholders and what this means in general for the for the island's uh, financial health?
4: Wow, we had a terrific piece uh, on uh, Bloomberg View today by Antonio Weiss the uh, ex-Treasury official who helped out with the uh, uh, setting up the oversight board. And he said he advocates bankruptcy because he doesn't think the new governor is going far enough in adjusting the debt. So he is really advocating haircuts for all. You know, you still have some hedge funders out there uh, who... Uh, uh, bought Puerto Rico GEOs or bought Puerto Rico sales
1: tax GOs bonds. GEOs are general obligation bonds. Go
4: on, Right. Who who believe that it's GEOs at par. I remember that was a rallying cry. Guess what? No GEOs at par for you. It looks like haircuts for all. And with this Weiss piece today, that was um, sort of really putting it on the table, telling the governor, who, by the way, is advocating cuts for everyone, but... This wise piece says, no, no, you're not going far enough. You've got to really reduce debt.
1: No par for you. We'll keep that in mind as we head toward lunchtime. Joe Mycic, thank you so much for joining us. As always, uh, Joe Mycic, editor for Bloomberg Brief on municipal markets and expert on all things related to munis. Now we want to hear from Ian Wishart. He is a Bloomberg News reporter in Brussels, and he wrote a story today that I found fascinating about uh, Theresa May, who is the head of uh, Britain, and sort of the internal discussions that she's having with Parliament in that country about what she may have to face as she uh, engages in the Brexit process. Ian, thank you so much for joining us. Can you give us a little bit of color around uh, some of the pessimistic Paintbrush that the parliament uh, parliamentary members are trying to give to Theresa May to give her sort of a dose of reality.
5: That's right. Hello from Brussels, where the summit's been going on between EU leaders. And basically, um, you're right. There's a lot of people in a lot of members of the Parliament of the UK who who aren't happy with the way that the Prime Minister Theresa May has gone about this. So, some on one hand want her to trigger what they call Article 50, which is part of the EU's constitution, which allows a country to leave the EU. They want her to do that as soon as possible. Others want her to wait a lot longer. Um, to make sure she knows exactly what she wants. And she's trying to balance, really, balance those two extremes of uh, of opinion um, to please everybody at the same time in London before she comes back here to Brussels to the European Union to officially start the negotiations with the EU about Brexit.
0: I'm wondering if you could maybe just add to this some context regarding Northern Ireland and Scotland and what this kind of means, not only for what becomes of Britain after the exit, but also what this means for the European Union itself.
5: Yeah, there's a lot of confusion and a lot of complexity. Um, Let's start with Scotland, where Scotland, obviously, part of the United Kingdom, so Scotland has to live with any decision that the rest of the UK that England makes, Scotland actually, the people of Scotland actually didn't support Brexit, but the, the, the UK as a whole did. So they're talking about holding a referendum of their own again in Scotland to break away from England, to break away from the UK, because they don't like what Prime Minister Theresa May is doing in pulling out of the EU. So that's one story that might develop over the next year or so. Then you've got Northern Ireland, which again is part of the UK, but the Republic of Ireland isn't. The Republic of Ireland is a separate country that belongs to the EU and will stay in the EU. So you've got a border between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland. Island, um, and that's been subject to uh, of violence and war over the, sort of the last 30, 40 years. Um, there was peace in the last 10 years, but they're really worried that if that border becomes a border, not just between Ireland and Britain, but between the whole of the European Union and Britain, then those troubles might come back again. So that's obviously on the minds of negotiators both in London and in Dublin, and they want to avoid that in whatever deal they come up with. And you're right, there's also talk about the future of the EU and what that will look like after the UK leaves.
1: Uh, Ian, you said uh, a while back that Parliament members were not happy with the approach that Theresa May has taken with respect to Brexit. What could she change that would bring them into the fold and make them more supportive of her plans?
5: Um, It depends which ones you ask, but most of them will say, we want some reassurances that you're going to protect um, our interests, that you're going to protect British interests, that we're not going to be worse off after we leave the European Union. So um, nationals are protected in where they can travel, where they can go and work in Europe, that... That the UK is not paying um, into the European Union budget anymore. There's some speculation that it may have to pay 60 billion euros when it leaves of financial contributions and they don't want that either because they say, why are we leaving the EU if we still have to pay? So all these reassurances need to be made. The trouble for Theresa May is she can't really make those reassurances because it all depends on what sort of deal she gets with the EU over the next 18 months or so.
0: I want to thank you very much uh, for joining us. Ian Wishart, he is our European government reporter. He is reporting from Brussels.
1: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast.
0: You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox.
1: I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.